Welcome back to the river 2018. When you left, it was 2017, and now it's 2018. It's another year. I hope you enjoyed your Christmas break. I hope that you spent some time with friends and family. For some of you, that might have been stressful. For some of you, it might have been restful. But um, welcome back. And I hope you're as eager as I am to jump back into the study of God's Word. It's such a blessing that we get to come here, especially as this is January. This is my least favorite month. (laughs) This is the month of darkness. And I'm so thankful that I get to come into this room with all of your bright, smiling, joyful faces and be in the study of God's Word that just lifts our perspective. So if you're new and you're joining us, this is the study of Ephesians. We're on chapter 9, lesson 9, not chapter 9, lesson 9, but only chapter 2. So we have taken a long journey through chapter 1. And so we are studying um, today the verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2. And the concepts that we have been thinking about this fall, um, we've been, are, are rich in truth. We've been examining our identity as Christ followers, and we've been learning together what it really means to be in Christ. In Christ is a theme of Ephesians. We come to that phrase over and over again, in Christ. And so we've been contemplating since October, what does it mean to be in Christ? And we've been thinking much more deeply about our salvation. Salvation, that is a word that I think We toss to and from at times, and we don't really think deeply about what does that mean? What does it mean, salvation? Salvation is what happens when a person agrees with God's word in the Bible about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. And, of course, that's what we just celebrated at Christmas, right? We celebrated the birth of Jesus, God's Son coming into the world through a virgin, through Mary, God being with us, Emmanuel, God with us. It's what we just celebrated. And if you were with us on Women's Night of Worship, you also contemplated with me the fact that when Jesus was born into this world, he was the light who came into the darkness of our world. And, and certainly we, we have physical evidences today of the darkness of our world, but we know that our world is a world of spiritual darkness and of brokenness and sin and longing and touches of evil. And there's so much in our world that's dark, and yet Jesus came and he was the light that came into the world that gave us hope and gave us a perspective that, that saved us. And we know that in Jesus' earthly life, Jesus demonstrated God's great love for us. Jesus demonstrated the power that God has over evil. And he also told us truth about God and, and pointed us to God's coming kingdom. We know that when we look at Jesus, we see one who is fully God and fully man, perfectly sinless, And he's the one who died on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood for our sins so that we could live in a relationship today of peace and intimacy with God. So when we believe what the Bible tells us about who Jesus is, and I don't say was, I say is because he's alive today, and what Jesus has done for us, then we enter into this new life with God. We enter into this relationship with God. We are welcomed into his eternal family. 
And we are given the gift of his Holy Spirit to live within us. The Holy Spirit tethers us to God constantly. And we're invited into a community of people. We belong to the church, God's people. And the church is all believers in the entire world in this age and in the ages past and the ages to come. But right now, we belong to this community of people. We're part of God's family. And so this fall, we've been examining all of the blessings that come with being in this position of being in Christ. We've been examining, Paul's been helping us understand, so what does it mean that we're in Christ? And I'm just reminding you of what we've learned. We've learned that it means to be chosen to be holy and blameless before God, to be adopted into his family. We are daughters of the king. It means to be redeemed. That means purchased out of the bondage and slaveyard of sin. Those chains have been broken. We've been purchased out of that unto God himself. We've been forgiven of all of our sins. He has lavished on us wisdom and grace. We've been given insight into the mysteries of his kingdom. There are things that we understand that we never could understand before because he's revealed them to us. And he is uniting all things together under Christ. Those are some of the spiritual blessings that we've come to understand as we've been contemplating our salvation in Christ. And as we've been discovering, being saved changes everything everything, does it not? It changes everything about our relationship with God because no longer are we his enemies, no longer are we afraid of him, no longer do we fear him. We're in a relationship of peace with him. It changes everything about our relationships with others because not only do we belong to a community of God's people, the church, but we also have the Holy Spirit's ability to forgive and extend grace and mercy and kindness and love to other people that we never even wanted to do before. And it changes everything about our relationships within ourselves, that we actually can have peace and we can have joy and hope and freedom from shame and blame and all the things that, that tear us apart internally. It changes everything about that. But as we ended our study in right before Christmas, Paul gave us a really stark reminder of our identity and our spiritual state apart from Christ. What we look like from God's perspective before we come to know God or even in this moment, if we don't know him yet, what our state is apart from him. And so we've got to go back and see what Paul had to say about us. Because in my understanding, I can't really appreciate what my salvation means unless I realize what I've been saved from. And so let's go back and look at this together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." That's, that's icky. 
that's our human condition apart from God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, which means our hearts are cold and hard, and and we're so in love with the passions of our flesh, we are dead towards God. We are disobedient towards his word. We don't even want to obey his word. We think it's foolishness. And God tells us in that condition we're doomed. We're doomed to eternal life apart from him, separated, judgment. And apart from a divine intervention by God, Apart from God doing something completely miraculous, divinely interceding on our behalf, people are, are powerless and corrupt and hopeless to change. And because of the forces of the world and of Satan and of our own sinful nature, which we talked about last time we were together, we don't even want to change. We have no interest in God. God's word is meaningless to us. We have no desire for God. And so, thankfully, you know what God could have done with us? He could have went, well, that went wrong. (laughs) He could have said, well, that's the choices that they made. He could have left us to doom and destruction. He could have left us in our sins. But you know what God does instead? He doesn't leave us in that wretched state. And you know why? It's not because we're so worth it. It's not because we're so great. It's not because we're so full of potential. It's because of his character. It's because of who he is. It's because of his nature that he is such a compassionate God. He is so full of kindness and grace and love and mercy that he did not leave us in that state. He created us and he loves us so much. And do you remember how, um, how many of you were with us last year when we studied the attributes of God? Okay, many of you were. Was that not like the most amazing study? It still is with me. I think this will probably supersede that when we're done with this year. But as we looked at last year, we looked at God's character so deeply. And we looked at um, one particular passage we kept returning to over and over and over again. Do you remember what it is? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It seemed like we kept constantly turning back to that passage because that, is, that, is, that passage is the most quoted passage in the Bible. About It's the most quoted passage from the Bible, most quoted in the Bible. Anyway, um, that passage um, is where God, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God knows that if he truly visibly reveals himself to Moses, it will kill him. His glory is so is so powerful. And so he takes words and he speaks words to Moses about who he is. He tells Moses his identity. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. And I think that's why we're here today. This is why we're here worshiping him. It's why we're here opening his word together. It's why we're here enjoying community. It's because of who God is, and it's because of what God's done for us. And so today, what we're going to learn is that by grace, we are made alive in Christ. By grace, we are made alive in Christ, and we become the recipients of his kindness and blessing. So we only have a few verses, but we're going to look at the first two verses, and we're going to see how God made us alive in Christ by his grace. And then we're going to look at 6 and 7, and we're going to see how God raised us up to be with Christ and to be recipients of his grace. So let's dive in. 
It's interesting because there's only two small three-letter words that change everything for us. Do you know what they are? But God. But God. Three letters, two words, changes everything for us. These two words are set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, and they invite us into a whole new realm of life and blessing. But God are the two words that saved us. Those are the words of our salvation. Let's read what he says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So, what has God done? He has saved us from our doom, our destruction, our despair, our disobedience. He has penetrated that darkness. He has saved us. He has taken us from doom and gloom to glory and gladness. I like glory and gladness better than doom and gloom. And um, by his grace, he has done this. It's not because we deserve it, it's he, but he's given us forgiveness and he's given us eternal life. Now, why did God do this? Why did God do this? It's because of who he is. It's because of his character. God is rich in mercy. Now, mercy and grace are two words that we use oftentimes in Scripture. We see in Scripture mercy and grace, but they actually have different meanings. When we look at the word grace, what we understand is that um, we deserve to be punished for our sins. The wages of sin is death. And so the punishment for our sins is that we must die. We die spiritually. We die physically. We must die in order to pay the penalty for our sins. But by God's grace, he forgives us. We don't deserve forgiveness, but we receive forgiveness by his grace. And so we don't, we don't die. Jesus paid the punishment on our behalf. He died in our place on the cross. He shed his blood on the cross. He experienced separation from God on the cross. So we don't ever have to be separated. You know, in that darkness that came over the earth when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was ripped apart from his Father, from the Spirit. He bore the penalty of eternal separation so that we never do have to experience that. He did that on our behalf. We don't deserve it, but we receive it by grace because Jesus did it in our place. Mercy is different. You know, sin causes us misery, Evil in this world causes us misery. The brokenness of this world causes us misery. Death causes us misery. And what God, when God sees our misery over sin and death and evil and brokenness and all that we go through, it moves his heart to feel mercy for us. He sees how sin and brokenness bears on us. He knows the pain that we feel. You know, he counts every tear that we shed. His heart is moved. He understands. He's the creator of all things. Better than anyone, he understands how his creation was supposed to be, apart from sin, apart from evil, apart from destruction. And so when he looks at us and he sees our misery, it moves his heart to mercy. And, and it's because of his mercy that he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins, to save us from our eternal suffering. You know, our God is a God who sees our pain, and he cares deeply for us. And why? Because he loves us. That's the other characteristic of God that's so amazing is his great love for us. You know, God's love, it's, it's more than just a feeling. 
I think his, his mercy is really a feeling, it's compassion. But his love is more than that. His, his love is a decision that he makes about us that moves him to action. And we know that, don't we, in marriage? Love is more than a feeling. It's a decision that we make that moves us to action. And it's the same way for God. You know, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he was moved to action. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so God was moved to action. He came down to us. He descended to us through the birth of Jesus. He didn't expect us to come to him. He knew that was impossible. He was moved to action. He sent his son into the world. He took the sins upon, Jesus took the sins upon himself and died a death on the cross. He suffered. And so God's great love for us is evidenced in Jesus Christ. By his mercy, God demonstrates his love for us while we were wretched sinners. You know, it was in the worst of sin that God sent his son to die for us. He saw our distress, he saw our brokenness, and he sent his son to us. In fact, Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the mercy there? It was while we were in the depths of doom and disobedience and, and despair that God sends his son to us, the but God, and rescues us from that condition. That's his mercy. And by his grace, he then makes us alive spiritually when we were previously dead. We become recipients of his undeserved favor. Now, how does God make us alive? Well, he does it by his resurrection power. You know, God is the only one who has power over life and death. He's the only one. He's the one who can speak a word and create. He can speak a word and heal. He can speak a word and cast demons out. He has power over life and death. And we see this in examples from Jesus' life. As we look into scripture, Jesus demonstrated God's power over life and death. There's three times in scripture where Jesus actually physically resurrected someone from the dead. One was Jairus' daughter. That's found in Acts 8, um, 49 through 56, if you want to go back and read the story. But Jairus was a ruler. Uh, He was in the military. And his daughter had died. And in the moment where the, her parents were, were grieving over her, Jesus came and he just spoke two words. He said, child, arise. And she, the Bible says that, that her spirit returned to her and she got up at once. Wow, that, he, Jesus was demonstrating God's power to physically resurrect someone from the dead. The second one is one you probably are a lot more familiar with, and that's Lazarus, right? Lazarus. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus, and, and Mary and Martha were his sisters, and they had a very close relationship. And then, and then Lazarus died, and he was in the tomb for four days. He probably didn't smell very good after four days. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And the tomb opens, and Lazarus comes out. He's alive. Um, He walked out of the tomb, resurrected to new life. Jesus was demonstrating physical resurrection. The third one really touched my heart this week. It's when Jesus resurrected a widow's son. 
This widow, she had no husband, and this was her only son. And the reason I think it touched my heart this week was that um, in Lake Oswego over Christmas, you might know the family. There was a, a mom and her 12-year-old daughter who attended LOJ. They were driving on icy roads over Christmas Eve, possibly, and their car slid and they were both killed. And the dad... I don't know this family, but my heart's been moved for them. I've been praying for them. The dad lost his wife and his only daughter. And so I would imagine that he is in a condition much like this woman was without a spouse and without a child. And look look what Jesus does in this passage. It's in Luke 7, 11 through 17. It says, Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And I love this line. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He felt mercy towards her. He saw the misery of her pain. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the buyer, that's the, the stand that holds the casket, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus demonstrated his power over life and death. Three examples of the physical calling from death into life. And this is a picture of what happens in spiritual uh, resurrection when one person goes from spiritual death to spiritual life through belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrated to us in a physical realm, but it's a picture of what happens spiritually John 5.24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is what we call the word regeneration. It's a term that we use to speak of this, this new life that happens when one person believes in Jesus Christ and believes and agrees with God about who he is and what he's done, there's a quickening of the spirit. There's a, there's a, a, a death-to-life experience in the spirit of a person where what was once dead, what, what hard was, heart was once hardened, eyes once blinded, um, a deadness to God becomes awakened to new life. It's a quickening to new life. This is regeneration. It happens instantaneously. It happens the moment a person believes in Jesus Christ and receives him as Savior. And this is compared in Scripture to new birth or to being born again, that quickening. You know, we're born once in the body physically, but we're born again in the spirit when we believe and receive Christ as our Savior. Jesus told Nicodemus about this in John 3.3 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We can't understand the word of God. We can't see God at work around us. We, we don't care about the things of God. We don't care about God himself unless we're born again of the spirit, unless we're quickened to new life. And so this is the truth that I see in these first two verses, and that is that the ultimate display of God's mercy 
is granting us forgiveness and eternal life. It's the ultimate display of God's mercy is that he grants us forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. Those two words, those words, but God, they just changed everything for us. By his rich mercy, by his great love, by his resurrection power, God invites us to experience this new life in the spirit. The forgiveness and the eternal life is offered to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It seems so simple, doesn't it? But it's not because our hearts are hard and our eyes are blind and we live in a world of noise that shouts different messages and we have so many distractions and we have our sinful nature and it's, it seems so easy just to agree and receive Christ, but it's not. It's hard. And Titus 3.5 says that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, this is just you to think about you. Have you received Christ as your Savior? And I, you might say, well, haven't you asked me that already this year? <laughs> yes, I have. But here's the thing. Sometimes we think we have. Sometimes we think, well, I grew up in this church. I sung in this choir. I attended Sunday school with my parents. I've come to Bible studies. You know, I've, I've, I've done all these things that technically should make me a Christian, but, but it's not about works of righteousness. It's not about the things that you've done, even the really good things. It's about your inward confession of faith in Christ. In, the, in your heart of hearts, do you believe, do you agree what God says? about who Jesus is, and do you truly believe that he died on the cross for you? And have you experienced this quickening to new life, that your life is different because God is alive within you through his spirit? And if, if you haven't yet done that, I just want to invite you today to search your heart and to make that confession and embrace the love that God has for you. Receive his grace, receive his mercy, receive his love, receive the spirit the power, the resurrected power of new life that he offers you. And if you have, which I know many of you have, as I have, let me ask you this question. How have, has God's life penetrated you and brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life? I wonder if I asked you, could you tell me a but God story in your life? You know that time when you were, not that time, but that season of your life when you were walking away from God, when you were living in darkness, when you were captive to sin, when you were experiencing hardship, darkness, despair, disobedience, and God intercepted your life. And he turned you to himself and he enabled you to see him by his spirit, who he really is, and you said, yes. I agree, I believe, I'm following Christ, and it, it changed your direction. Do you have a but God story, a story of divine interception in your life? And as you contemplate this new year, because if you do have a but God story, then you have received the Holy Spirit. And so now as we think about this new year ahead, this 2018, um, I want to challenge you with a coaching principle that I learned from my husband. He works for a coaching firm. And it's called Start, Stop, Keep. Have you heard of this? 
So as you think of your year, think of, your, think of you as having the Holy Spirit, which you have if you've believed and received Christ. What will stop, start, keep? So first of all, is there something in your life that's quenching the fire of God's Spirit in you? Is there an attitude, a behavior, a laziness, a pattern? Is there something in you that's threatening to put that fire out? What is it that you need to stop in order to fan the flames of God's spirit within you? Is there something that you need to start to fan the flames of God's spirit within you, to spend time with him, to pray, to contemplate the word, to serve, whatever it might be, to be in community? Is there something that you could do this year in 2018 to to ignite the spirit within you, to have a richer, deeper relationship with him? Or keep, what will you keep doing? pressing on through, even maybe if there's challenges ahead, showing up on Tuesdays, doing your Bible study, staying in your group, praying, whatever it would be, is there something that you want to press on and keep doing to keep pressing on in your spiritual life? What will you do to enjoy the salvation that God has provided for you? Well, before we move on to verse 6, Notice, I want you to notice that verse 5 talks about that how we are made alive with Christ. Three times in this passage, Paul emphasizes that our salvation is actually being with Jesus, being with him now, present, here, and also with him in eternity. And so he continues by saying in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, the greatest joy of the Christian life isn't just that we're saved from doom and despair and destruction and and all of that. It's that we're saved to be with someone. We're saved to be with Christ. And that is, is the most amazing thing, which we see three times in this passage. He says we're we are made alive together with Christ. We are raised up with him, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. We're with him. Now, it's interesting to note that these three activities, being made alive or quickened, being raised up and seated, they're all facets of the historical life of Jesus. Because if you think about Jesus' life, he was dead in the tomb after the crucifixion, and God made him alive. He resurrected him, and then he ascended, he raised up to heaven, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus, in his historical life, was made alive, raised up, and seated, and now Paul is telling us that we are going to be with Christ, quickened, raised up, uh, quickened, alive, raised up, and seated with him as well. We share in this union with Christ, and we share in it in a, in a today kind of a way and in a not yet kind of a way. So for now, we have the Holy Spirit at work within us. We're made alive the moment we believe and receive. We're quickened in our spirit. We're born again. We're regenerated. But the Spirit then continues to, to nurture that life of Christ within us as we live out our earthly days. So one thing that happens is we have an awareness of God's presence. We... Um, our minds are quickened to learn. You know, how many of you have read Ephesians before in your life and it was gobbledygook? It meant nothing to you. 
And now all of a sudden you're like, there's treasures here of wisdom and truth that I never saw before. You know, that's the spirit who, who opens our minds to see these things. And so he makes the word come alive. He softens our hearts towards people. You know, he gives us forgiveness and grace and love that we never had towards people. We care about things we don't care about. That's the spirit at work at us. The spirit gives us victory over temptation. And actually, sin becomes repulsive. Have you found that in your life where something that you once found, you know, tantalizing or enticing becomes repulsive to you? That's the spirit alive. So we have the spirit. The spirit reminds us of the things that we've been set free from in our world. It reminds us that we're forgiven. So we don't deal with the shame and the blame and the things that keep many people captive in life. The Spirit also leads us in prayer, gives us a desire to commune with God, gives us words to speak sometimes when we can't think of the words. The Spirit um, gives us gifts to serve in the body of Christ. The Spirit opens our eyes to see the regeneration of our own hearts. I mean, how many of you can look back a year or two or three years and say, I was different then. I've been changed. I am not the same person. And the Holy Spirit is the one who shows you how he's been at work in you. That's the Spirit. So we are, we are quickened. We are made alive. We are born again, and we have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is with us here and now in this life, changing us and reminding us that we have this new life in Christ and giving us gifts and resources and, and truth and all of these beautiful things. And he also gives us a hope about the future. And so that's the now aspect of our salvation. But there's this not yet aspect of being with Christ physically. So right now, Christ is in the heavenly places, and he is reigning uh, supreme over far above all rule and authority. That's where he is. Remember, we looked at that in Ephesians 1.20. Paul taught us that God has seated Christ uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then when we started our, our lesson in Ephesians, Paul reminded us that we share in the blessings of Christ when he told us that we are blessed. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you remember that? But now Paul is telling us how we've been blessed in Christ. He's telling us that we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He says in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this isn't a future. This isn't, he's saying this, this is what's happened. So because we are in Christ, our spiritual position is determined. We are with him in the heavenly places, seated with him. Now, physically, we're still here. So our salvation isn't, is, is, a, is a now and a not yet. It's already determined what our not yet position is going to be. That's been decided. But we are still waiting for the full completion of our salvation when we will actually be in his physical presence. We will see him like he is. And the Bible tells us that we will have resurrected bodies like his. In the last days before his um, ascension, he had a different kind of a body, resembling a human body, but, but different. And we will have a body like his, so we will see him and be like him. And for now, there are aspects of our salvation and of his 
power and of his attributes that we have today as we continue to live and we wait for that day when we'll be with him. For example, we have power to resist temptation, to resist sin, to deny the lures of the devil, the temptations of the flesh, and the things of our culture. We can ha- live in our new identity in Christ, which he's been talking to us about this whole, this whole time in Ephesians. But I want you to understand this. Right now, today, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a daughter of the king. You are part of his family. But what he's telling us is, one day, you will literally have a throne next to Jesus. You and I will be reigning with Christ, far above all rule and authority. And why? Why does God give us such a place of exaltation with Christ? Why would God do this? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does he give us such a place of privilege and honor, a throne beside Jesus reigning over all things? Because our lives become a masterpiece of art that he, the creator and artist, has painted. And all of creation looks at our lives and we show off his kindness and his riches in Christ. The whole of creation is going to look at our lives and they're going to see what wretched sinners we were. While we were still enemies, We were in disobedience. We were destined for doom and judgment. And because of God's kindness and his mercy, because he sent his son into the world to save us, and the Holy Spirit divinely God-ed our life, brought us into fellowship, gave us the spirit to live a different kind of life, because of that, all of creation will look at our lives, the immeasurable kindness of God towards us, and worship him. Isn't that amazing? I think we're going to be so blown away when we see God face to face and we truly understand not only what we've been saved from, but who we get to spend eternity with. I think we will be blown away when we see God's kindness and his grace and his mercy And we see the future for all eternity that we get to share with him. I mean, today we get a glimpse of it. We get glimpses of it. But then we're going to see it in all its glory. And it's going to be amazing. This is our salvation in Christ. This is what it means when when God says we have been saved by grace. So here's the truth that I want you to learn. And that is that the ultimate display of God's lavish grace is our eternal union with Christ. The ultimate display of God's lavish grace is our eternal union with Christ. Let me ask you, what glimpses of God's immeasurable grace and kindness have you seen lately in your life? Maybe it was over Christmas. Maybe it's just where you are right now in your journey of life. Maybe it's through a time of suffering. Maybe it's through a time of great joy and peace. I asked myself this question and I... I was just brought to the answer of, um, I've just seen God's incredible, immeasurable kindness toward me in answered prayer. 
my prayer life has just been exploding this year, and I've just seen God answering prayer in such amazing ways. For Christmas, just a time of rest, you know, a time of of detachment from things and catching my breath and being with family and um, for the things that God's called me to, which are way too big for me. Um, I'm starting a doctorate program that right now, and I'm also taking a seminary class at Western and working full-time and teaching and, <laughs> and stretch time. It's a miracle. It's just a miracle. And the joy in that or um, in relationships that are so filled with peace and in just the everyday, God just showing up, you know, my, oftentimes my, my prayer is help, Lord, and seeing him show up and provide help is amazing, and he is just the great provider, and so what is it for you? What is it in your life where, though one day we will see his immeasurable riches in all their glory, what is it today for you? What glimpses are you getting today? Um... Let me tell you again that it's by grace that we have been made alive in Christ because we are recipients of his kindness and blessing. I'm looking for a Kleenex. I know. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> um, but I just want to conclude with this, these words. I think, I think this is a big deal. I think our salvation is a really big deal. And I don't think that we often um, cherish it the way that we are meant to. I don't think I don't think that we really understand that we have a freedom from sin and from shame and from blame and from the power of this world and from the voice of the devil and from the things that want to hold us captive. We are set free. We have a new life. We have a new identity and it's a big deal. It's a big deal for us that should cause us to worship. It should cause us to soak in God's word, to devote ourselves to him, to his word, to prayer, to serving, to the body of Christ. It should change everything about our life because when we look at where we were headed before but God came in, it's a totally different life that we can be tempted to become too familiar with, too casual. And I think we need to maintain the the freshness of this precious gift. But also, we also need to have a heart for the people around us who are still in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and realize that um, God's mercy is towards them and his grace is extended to them. And we need to be able to be um, living testimonies living but God stories to the people around us who need that kind of hope. And so um, I just want to challenge us as we go into this new year to, to live differently, to not become complacent in our salvation, but to cherish it and to be worshipers and then also to have an eye for the people around us who are really lost and who really, they don't know the God that we know. So let me pray and then we got to worship. Father, we just thank you so much for your kindness. It's astounding to think that one day all of creation will worship you because of what you did for us. We thank you, Lord. 